This is Legacy Battle. Make sure you hit like and subscribe, whatever you're listening on. And I'm Mike Wyatt, creator of Legacy Battle. My panelists tonight from the Gridiron Battle Zone, Brian King, Ball State University, Paul Havocott from Steelers Nation South, Rollo Coffin. Our special guests were joined by a 14-year NHL defenseman with the Oilers, Penguins, Lightning, Canucks, Flyers, Coyotes, and even a little bit there on the Thrashers. He represented Team Canada two times at the Junior Games. Check out his website, www.chrisjosephhockey.com. Uh, he's got some uh, hockey camps on there that you can get your kids into and, and all kinds of stuff. So check that out. We'll discuss that later when we get to our Q&A. So we got we got defenseman Chris Joseph here. Chris, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for having me, Mike. Looking forward to it. Awesome. As always, we'll have our Q&A afterwards for Chris and his career. Uh, tonight's debate is going to be the greatest playoff comeback down 3-0. And there actually have been four teams in history that did that. So hence, there's four panelists tonight. Uh, we're going to start out with uh, Paul. Yeah, I went with the uh, Kings and the Sharks. And so in 2014, uh, the Kings were 46-28-8 and and the Sharks were 51-22-9. and The Sharks were actually fifth in the league in goals with 249, and the Kings were kind of towards the bottom, 25th out of 30th with 206. So the Kings were actually two years removed from being the NHL champions, and they had the Sharks had home ice advantage over the Kings in the first round of the playoffs. So we kind of start the playoffs here, and things are looking pretty set. They're dominating, uh, pretty dominating by the Sharks. They win the first two games, 6-3 and 7-4. Well, things are looking pretty set. In the third game, a little bit closer, but a lot of people consider this a turning point. The Sharks end up edging out the Kings by a score of 4-3 in overtime. So you still have a 3-0 series, but something must have happened in that long game three because game four, five, and six take a totally different tone. And uh, the Sharks end up losing by three goals in each of the games. So on April 30th, 2014, on San Jose's home ice, the Sharks actually do not lose by three. They lose by four goals instead. Kings get their first goal by Drew Dottie at uh, nearly five minutes into the second period. Then uh, Andre Kopitar blows by Matt Nieto uh, and scores on a shifty forehand, backhand move. So it's 2-1 at the end of the second. You can kind of feel this momentum, this momentum shift, dark momentum shift. And sure enough, in the third period, the Sharks only land two shots on goal in the first 12 minutes of the third period and uh, a stunning 0 for 15 in power play minutes. Many people point to the key play in the entire series of Jonathan Quick's save as it was 1-1 midway through the second. And the Sharks got their first sustained pressure of the game, one shot by Pelveski, uh, another then Patrick Marlowe pouncing on a Loose puck just outside the crease with quick down and out, but he wasn't. He reaches over, flings across the crease. Love kind of short darting to the exact spot that Marlowe targeted, and with that, he makes a stop of the playoffs. Sharks never score again and lose uh, five to one that game. And with that being said, the Kings joined Toronto in 1942 and the Islanders in 1975 and Philadelphia in 2010 as the only team to complete that comeback, being 3-0 to start a series, down 3-0 to start a series. Chris, this was during that 10-year period where the Sharks were supposed to win the Stanley Cup every year, and they just never broke through. What do you think went wrong for them during that, just that whole time period, not just this series? 
I mean, I, it's hard to say. I mean, uh, they were up against a pretty strong, although they were better than the Kings. The Kings had tons of experience. And uh, there's always that goalie factor with Jonathan Quick, and he was in his prime then. So you never really know. But uh, whatever happened in games three and four really changed the momentum. Um, so it's hard to say why San Jose couldn't uh, hoist Stanley Cup, but uh, it just goes to show how difficult it really is. I know why they couldn't hoist it in 2016, right? Right here, Crosby. <laughs> Anywho, I, I digress. Yeah, and you mentioned Jonathan Quick. I, I'm pretty sure he got the con Smythe that year, too. Um, I think they, they went on and won. So, uh, very impressive. You know, what are your thoughts on the Kings, too? Uh, you know, Kopitar, Carter was there at that point, I believe. They had nice Drew Dougherty on defense, one of the best defensemen in the league. Is, what, did you see any holes on that team at all? Not really. They were solid. That was back when Chicago and L.A. were going back and forth winning cups. And uh, they both had different style teams. But that was a uh, that was a Sutter-led team that was – they were one of the first ones to get big and heavy. And uh, they played a punishing style of hockey, which they kind of still play a little bit today. Um, but they were – you know, people thought that they were old and slow. Well, not really old so much, but they thought they were big and slow. And uh, the way they ended up grinding it out uh, to win those two cups uh, goes to show that, you know, there was still a place in the NHL at that time because there was a real smaller speed movement in the NHL. Um, but uh, Sutter's not that type of guy. And um, obviously, you know, having the big heavy guys, you see a lot of that nowadays, you know, but now they're the combination of both. They can, they got some speed and skill, but you got to have a little bit of meat in your lineup nowadays too. And if you're a big Kings fan, guys, go out, check in our archives. We did a Kings show with Bernie Nichols. Well, let's move on to Rollo. 2010, Flyers Bruins. Uh, it was a historic collapse by the Bruins. They were up 3-0 in the series. They were also up 3-0 in game seven of that series. Um, but both teams would use this game kind of as a springboard to a Stanley Cup final. Uh, the Flyers would wind up going um, up against the, the Blackhawks in that year's Stanley Cup final, and the Bruins would use this as motivation to move on to the Stanley Cup final the next year and win it all. Um, but the, the Bruins had one, they won 5 4 in OT in game one, and 3 2 and 4 1 in games two and three. Uh, but it was the return of Simone Gagne that kind of helped the the Flyers uh, come back because he wound up winning the game winner in OT in game five. Um, he wound up scoring four goals over the final four games uh, that helped them complete the comeback. Uh, the Flyers found life in game five, winning 2-1. But in game seven, <clears throat> the, Brewers, the Bruins looked like they had it. They were up 3-0 with uh, three first period goals from Michael Ryder and Milan Lucic, and they looked like they were on the way. But James Van Reeves, like, got them on the board, got the Flyers on the board in game seven in the first period. And two goals in the second period from Scott uh, Hartnell and Daniel Breer uh, tied it up in, 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 in the second period. But a crucial, crucial too many men on the ice penalty uh, allowed Simone Gagne to secure the power play goal that eventually would wind up being the game winner and complete the comeback. Um, it was a historic uh, collapse, what, probably one of the biggest collapses in all of sports. 
uh, not just hockey, because they were up 3-0 in game seven on home ice, and they wound up losing um, uh, the, the series to the Flyers. So, Chris, I mean, they ha- they're up 3 nothing, not just in that final game, but in the series. And then, as Rollo points out, the final game, they're up 3 nothing on the scoreboard, and they still lose it. I mean, this kind of me sounds like the ultimate tanking. Like, what do you th- what do you think went wrong? And this was one I did not see coming in that series. I had Boston totally. And you know what? I didn't see him. I didn't see it coming either. Um, Boston was sort of building as a team that year, and they obviously went on to win the next year. Um, it might have been one of those just, you know, lack of playoff experience at the time. Uh, it might have been some complacency. It might have been the combination of, uh, you know, getting an inspirational spark from Simone Gagne coming back. Whatever it was, I don't think uh, I don't think too many people saw that one on the radar. Um, and then the Flyers went on a pretty good run. Did they not lose to Chicago that year in the finals when nobody realized? Yes. Game scored. Yeah. Yeah. It was a pretty good run, uh, but again, they ran up against a really strong Chicago team. Uh, but yeah, I think that's maybe one of those ones where little lack of playoff experience with the Bruins that obviously propelled them to win it the next year to, you know, to learn that, you know, you can't take anything for granted. Uh, it's amazing though. You know, it's all mental. It's so mental when you get into those big games and we see it again this year in, in all the playoff series, uh, one small little save, one hit changes everything. That's what I was going to ask, too. Rollo mentioned the delay of game penalty. I mean, can one penalty change the outlook of a series like that? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, all it's interesting how it, it doesn't seem to change it right then and there, but it changes a mind shift, you know, like depending on how that call goes. So let's say you get a power play goal. All of a sudden, your bench is up and their bench is down. Um, it does change the way that you feel. And that leads to the next shift and the next shift. So, yeah, it's a, it's a constant battle, and uh, it's ever-changing. So we're going to move on here to 1975, the Islanders over the Penguins. And I got to say that over the entire history of the Pittsburgh Penguins, I, I think the Islanders have kind of been their, uh, their Achilles heel. It's just uh, time after time the Islanders take out the Penguins. But uh, so 1975 – Penguins win the first three games, and they put up 14 goals. Uh, that was as good as it would get for them in the, in the series. They only score five goals in the next four games. So for the Islanders, you know, goalie Billy Smith is who most people would be familiar with from that time period. Uh, this was before they were winning their Stanley Cups, though. Um, he started the first three games. He did not play very well. This wasn't the Billy Smith three, four years down the road. Um, so he was replaced for game four uh, with Gary Innes, and he puts up a save percentage of 9.15 in his first game. Consider the time period. That is a good save percentage. Uh, you know, this isn't the uh, – this was like, you know, wide open hockey back then. So game five, uh, they go with uh, Glenn Resch, and, and he finishes out this series, and, and check out his save percentage. Game five, 9.47. Game six, 9.47. And then pitches the shutout for the, the perfect save percentage there in game seven. That regular season, the Penguins put up 89 points. They scored 306, 326 goals. So we knew that they could put, put the puck in the net. 
Um, and then you look at the Islanders. They uh, had 88 points that season. They only put up 264 goals. They were better defensively, though. Um, so, like I said, we knew going into the series that the Penguins could score. But as we've seen time and time again in playoff hockey, defense and goalies can still series. So anything is is possible when you get the hot goalie. Chris, how does the goaltending change affect a hockey team's psyche, and how does it affect the goalie being pulled? Um, well, I mean, you see it even today. Goal, a lot of teams, they have one stud goalie, but there's a trend going towards having two good goalies nowadays because you just want to go with the hot hand. Um, so you do see goalies change once in a while. I mean, the game is so fast and so physical now that it doesn't take a lot now to get in a, uh, a star or goaltender's face and you throw off their one star and their backup isn't capable. You know, that's that's a big change. Uh, but at the same time, as we spoke about in the last two series, confidence. You know, like if you get, you know, your, your backup goalie comes in, the team, a lot of times they batten down the hatches and they work a lot harder for that backup goalie. Uh, and they find themselves a little bit of a rhythm as a, as a unit of, you know, 20 skaters and goaltenders, and it seems to work. And, again, it's it's mental, but, you know, and um, it's interesting how, you know, the uh, those years the Islanders and Penguins were pretty even. Um, sometimes that's all it takes is just a goaltender switch to make that little difference. Hot goalie will get you. We've learned that time and time again. Well, let's move to uh, Brian, our final team. All right, so we're going to go way back. We're going back to the 1941-42 season uh, for the Detroit Red Wings versus Toronto Maple Leafs. Now, this time, there are only seven teams in the league. You had the original six plus the Brooklyn Americans. Uh, Toronto took second in the standings. The Wings took fifth. Uh, the Wings knocked out both the, the Bruins and the Habs in the playoffs. The Leafs took out the first-place Rangers. So in the finals, the Wings took... Game one, game two, and game three take a 3-0 lead in the series uh, by a combined score of 12 to 6. Um, game four, obviously, Leafs are faced with elimination. Uh, the Leafs coach, Hap Days, is getting desperate. He's trying to change things up. He's trying to figure out what he's going to do to just shake shake things up. And so he takes and he he pulls Bucko McDonald and future NHL Hall of Famer, uh, Gordy uh, Drillon. Uh, out of the game in favor of uh, Don Metz and Hank uh, Goldup. So this shakeup, believe it or not, it worked. And the Leafs, you know, they started uh, they started game uh, game four down two, but they roared back and they won four to three. And the Wings, they were so shook by this loss and some questionable officiating that their head coach Jack A Jack Adams actually attacked the referee punching him in the face after completely just cussing him out. Uh, the Detroit fans began booing, and they threw anything that they could get their hands on onto the ice. And uh, Adams was uh, suspended indefinitely. So and now in games five, six, and seven, it was clear that the Wings had just completely lost their focus. Uh, they lost nine to three, three nothing, and three to one respectively. Um, game seven was the most intriguing uh, for a few reasons. One, the Wings survived a two-man advantage unscathed. Um, I'm sorry, the uh, the uh, the Leafs. The Leafs uh, survived a two-man advantage unscathed. They survived being outshot 
16 to seven in the third period. And it was the first time in history that more than 16,000 fans attended a hockey game in Canada. So the Leafs completed the monumental 3-0 comeback, the first to ever do so. And Coach Day summed it up best when he said, we did it the hard way. That's some uh, that's some old-time Gordie Howe hockey there. The coach right, right. <laughs> fights. Hansons would be proud of that one. Chris, I, I realize this is this is before before all of us, of course, but yeah. so this is two original six teams here going at it. And due to the amount of teams in the league, we know how many times they would have played in the regular season. Was that a benefit to the Leafs in this series? Uh, well, hard to say. I, I don't know what the head-to-head matchup was against them, but they obviously saw each other quite a bit. Um, and just listening to the story, because we obviously weren't there, um, sounds like Detroit lost their cool from the top down. And, uh, you know, it's pretty it's pretty cool how, you know, that kind of stuff was happening in the 40s. That kind of stuff can happen today. Um, it's pretty cool how, you know, if you got leadership that's sort of not in control, um, you know, it filters down. It goes from the general manager to the coach to the star to the fourth line grinder. Um, it's it's pretty cool how you see NHL coaches on the bench today and there's a goal scored against them and rarely do they show emotion. And it's all that business-like approach. And, uh, you know, Jack Adams, the, the, tro- the coach of the year trophy is named after him. So he must have been a good coach, but he uh, lost his marbles on that one, it sounds like. And it probably had a, uh, a ripple effect. Yeah, Brian, that was that was a very interesting story there. I, that, that was good. I like that. So let's uh, let's move into our vote here. Can't vote for your own. Paul, who are you taking? Yeah, that's tough. I was, I was thinking about taking the Penguins Islanders because I think wasn't it like 2019 they got surprised by the Islanders again. But then Brian goes and starts telling me about how everybody's fighting, and I mean, I was thinking to myself. If something like that happened nowadays, we'd be talking about that for like a month, maybe yeah. more. I don't know. I'll go with that one. I, I, I remember the 40s like it was just yesterday. So, <laughs> Brian? Now, yeah, this this was tough. They're, they're all very equal. Um, to me, I, I feel like with the, with the San Jose one, I mean, they were kind of, I, I kind of expected them to choke in that in that time frame, so it didn't really surprise me as much. Uh, to be honest, you know, ja- but I, Jamie Baker is going to be so. I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to go with this episode. Yeah, I know. I'm sorry, man. I'm sorry, but it's just that's how things were. I, I'm I'm going to go with the uh, the Philly Boston one. I, I think that one that one was the one there. Okay. Rollo. I got to go with the. Uh, I know the the Sharks were kind of playoff chokers, but the Kings won. They won like twenty six. They played like twenty six Stanley Cup games and won like seven elimination games. So they were overcoming the entire playoff. So I got to go with them. Okay, and uh, you know, Brian, I I agree one hundred percent with what you just said about the Sharks. Man, they they just were choking it away every year. So uh, I can't give my vote to them. Um, I do like your story on the 42 Leafs. I think it's very entertaining. However, I just – there's only six teams in a league. That bugs me. 
Toronto probably saw them, what, 20 times in the regular season. So they knew how they played, and I know there was a deconstruction. So I'm going to go Flyers-Bruins too. Chris? Tough one, guys. Uh, those are awesome. Um, I definitely agree with all of you guys that we kind of expected the, sh the Sharks to choke, which is which is bad. Uh, and then I look at, you know, like what happened as a result of those. So obviously the Kings went on to win the Cup. Uh, the Flyers lost in the Cup final. But I got to kick it old school. If I was able to sit in Maple Leaf Gardens or the, I don't even know which rink it was in 1942 in Detroit, the Olympia, put my fedora on, go to a game and watch that mess, I think I would have been all over it. So I'm going to go with the 1942 Stanley Cup Finals. So that's two for the Leafs and two for the Flyers in our show when it's a tie. The guest vote counts as a little more. So that's a win for the 42 Leafs over the Wings. Nice job, Brian. You'll get our first question in Q&A, and then we'll go uh, Rollo, Paul, me. All right, Chris. Uh, the 1991-92 season, uh, you were in Edmonton. Guys had an interesting year. Uh, only 82 points, you know, just barely were 500, but got into the playoffs, made some noise. Uh, you personally had a very good series against the Canucks, uh, four points in five games. Uh, ultimately, Chicago was too much in conference finals. But uh, what was that season like for you? And you know, it seemed like you guys were out there playing really loose. Yeah, I actually split the season that year. I was in Cape Breton in the minors. I was up in Edmonton. And I kind of got called up at the end of the year um, just for the playoff run. And um, it was a funny story. It was actually I didn't get called up at the end of the year because I didn't have a great playoffs in Cape Breton. And, but I was living in Edmonton, and uh, they had called up a guy, Brad Warenka. They called up Francois LaRue, a couple of Penguins, uh, but they were all Oilers at the time. And uh, I'm sitting at home one morning, and I was living here, uh, and I get a phone call, and it's Glenn Sather. And he's like, what are you doing? I go, well, I'm just hanging out. He goes, we need you to play tonight. I go, what? I didn't even... Like, I'm sitting at home. My season's over. You didn't even call me up. You got Warinka and you got uh, LaRue. And he goes, we need you to play tonight. So they threw me in the lineup against uh, Vancouver or L.A. Um, had a, you know, good run. But uh, we were up against, that that time, a really strong Chicago team. Um, but, yeah, we weren't really expected to do much, but we still had a lot of veteran leadership with Mark Messier and Kevin Lowe. And it was a... It was a fun time. It was a good learning experience for me as a young guy. Rollo. Chris, you got to play with uh, Mar Mario Lemieux and Yamir Yager. We're all Penguins fans, I believe, on this call. Um, <clears throat> you got to play with those two guys. Uh, what was it like taking the ice with those guys, and, and what was their practice habits like? Uh, were they super intense? Were they laid back? What was it like playing with those guys? Uh, it's interesting. I get to ask that question a lot. Uh, and I compare them. So I got to say, first off, that Mario and Wayne, they should have had a different league just for them. Like, they were that much better than the rest of us. I remember Mario saying in his book there that uh, the blade of his stick felt like an extension of his hand. I'm thinking to myself, I never felt that way ever. Mm -hmm. um, so they were elite, very elite. And interestingly, they were very different uh, on this. Very calm, both of them. Um they weren't super vocal. 
but they would uh, take charge of the game and lead by example. Um, they both worked really hard, but Mario was a little more into getting his rest. He was a little more, I'd say, natural talent. Wayne worked at it probably a little harder. But here's how I explain those two guys. If you were to put them one-on-one -on -one against each other, Mario would win every single time. But if you put five Waynes out against five Marios, Wayne would win every single time. So those are just, to me, those are the little differences. Uh, they were both incredible, both unreal human beings and, and nice people, uh, but really good uh, leaders, good, great pros, great people, uh, great work ethic, and they deserved everything they got. In keeping with that theme, I guess, I when I was reading your background, I wanted to ask you this. In 87, you were drafted by the Pens, so you have the prospect of playing with Mario and all that, but you didn't last long there. They ended up sending you over for a big blockbuster trade, kind of. And in that trade, they got Penguins. Got Paul Coffey is one of my favorite Penguins of all time. But then you circle around and come back. I, I think it would have been what, like 94, maybe. And I guess my question is put us there with you. Was that just devastating? disappointment not to get to play with Mario or is it just like, hey, I'll play wherever and, and then when you come back you forget it all or you um, start over or how, how was that for you? Well, um, when I first was drafted by the uh, Penguins, it, I was 18 years old. I actually made the Penguins right out of training camp. Probably didn't belong to be honest, but uh, we weren't a strong team yet. Uh, so they kept me. I ended up playing about 17 games. And then they, uh, they got the Paul Coffey trade, which they couldn't pass up. And I was part of that. So it was me, Craig Simpson, Mo Mantha, and Dave Hannon went to Edmonton. Uh, Coffey, Wayne Van Dorp, and Dave Hunter came to Pittsburgh. Um, so at that point, I was like, oh, great. I'm going to the Stanley Cup champions. And then when I got to Edmonton, I was like, oh, great. I'm playing with the Stanley Cup champions. I'm having a hard time even getting ice time now because their, their team was so deep. So it was difficult that way. Um, but I was fortunate enough to go back to Pittsburgh in 94, 95. And I absolutely love being a Penguin. Um, you know, the Oilers and the Penguins are by far my two favorite teams now. I live here in Edmonton, uh, but the Penguins have always got a special place in my heart. Uh, Wayne and Mario have always been my favorites. Paul Coffey is actually one of my favorites. I played with him later on in, uh, in Philadelphia. And just one of the nicest guys ever. So I was very grateful to go back uh, to Pittsburgh. We had solid teams then. Uh, I played that one year in 95, 96. We lost to the Florida Panthers in game seven. That was the year, I think, uh, Yarmir, Mario, both had 60 goals. Like Just lucky, lucky to be part of some magical teams um, and just play with such amazing people. And I love my time in Pittsburgh. So I'm going to kind of build off of what you just said there at the end there, the 95-96 season, you guys, you, you lose to the Panthers in the conference finals. Uh, I've, always, I've always felt that if you had Ron Francis in that series, you guys would have won it and moved on to the Stanley Cup. I was just wondering your thoughts on that. And also, like, I remember Reggett starting those playoffs and then they made a switch back to Barrasso which was kind of surrising me. Reggett had played well. We, we, we've had Reggett on the show and uh, discussed that penalty shot Joe 
Joe Juno save and stuff. But uh, so what were your thoughts on the goaltending switch? Reggett was playing pretty well. And, and if Francis was in that Panthers series, do you think you guys would have pulled it off? Yeah, I think, uh, I mean, we went to game seven at home. We didn't play well in game seven at home. Tom uh, Brasso didn't play his best game either. It's hard to say. Tommy was a great goalie. Kenny was playing unreal as well. We needed him in that Washington series to start it off. Uh, I want to say maybe the biggest factor, though, was John Van Beesbrook. Uh, he uh, he really stood on his head, and he kind of led them past us. I was disappointed, you know. Um, I was a bit player then. I was a sixth or seventh defenseman getting a little bit of ice time on the back end with Frankie LaRue. Uh, and I'm like, okay, this is it. We're going to go to the Stanley Cup Finals and we get some ice time here. Uh, but to lose in Game 7 in the Conference Finals was absolutely heartbreaking. Uh, at that time, Colorado was a powerhouse team, but we had played Quebec, that team, really solid for the two previous years. To the, and, and we competed with them as good as anybody. And I was really looking forward to a real offensive battle. Uh, I probably was looking a little too far ahead. Uh, we just got some bad breaks in Game 7 and uh, couldn't couldn't close it out, but it uh, still stings today. That neutral zone trap. Don't even get me started on that. But uh, uh, One more each, guys. Same order. Okay. I, I, Chris, I, I understand you played three seasons in the, uh, in the German Hockey League. Uh, how would you say that hockey in Germany differs from the NHL? Uh, okay. Well, the NHL is by far the, the elite. Um, but what I found playing hockey in Europe, and I did a year in Finland, three years in Germany, and one in Italy, I found that uh, if you're an American hockey leaguer, if you're a good, you know, player, uh, that's a good spot to go. I was sort of on the bubble. I was up, I was up in the NHL, down in the minors. I was right on that bubble, and and going to Europe is a, well, number one, it's a life experience. It's a it's a wonderful experience for you and the family. Uh, number two, you know, they give you a house and car, so that's all set up. Number three, you're really not going to get called up, sent down. You've got some stability. So really, I mean, if and it worked out for me. I did my last five years in Europe. You kind of know you're not coming back. Uh, you know, like the writing's on the wall. Your, your career is either in decline or you're just hanging on, making some money for a few more years. But uh, I wouldn't change that for anything. You know, we'd get November breaks and February breaks. And, you know, we'd take the family down to the castles of Germany or we'd go down to Rome for a visit. Uh, when I was playing in Italy, we have a day off. We drive to Monaco. It's pretty cool. Like, Everything is really close there. Uh, basically a, a paid experience. You know, you, you usually come home with a little bit of money in the bank, not a lot. Um, but as far as the caliber of player goes, you, you have good American Hockey League players playing there that don't want the grind, um, but they're all missing something. You know, there's we're, they're either a little slow, a little uncoachable, um, you know, a little aging, uh, whatever it is. Uh, you know, there's something that they're missing is why they're not in the NHL, but they've also got tons of skill, which is why they're at that level. But I, I enjoyed it. I, I loved every minute of it. <clears throat> Chris, there's some exciting young hockey players in the league, like Connor McDavid, Austin Matthews, Bradley Kachuk. Who do you look at and say, wow, that guy is absolutely amazing? Well, obviously, McDavid. Uh, I'm here in Edmonton. 
so we are privileged to see McDavid and Drysaddle every game. They are next level. Um, see a guy like Pasternak. He's got some amazing finish. A guy like uh, Austin Matthews, an unreal shot. Um, but then I also get, like, I mean, not not young guys, but I like to watch some of the big stud defensemen just log minutes. A guy like uh, Hedman, you know, a guy that can log a lot of minutes and control a game. Um, you know, there's there's so many players out there now that uh, you watch them. Like the whole, the Cole Caulfield breed of young guys, they're so quick and so skilled. Trevor Zegras, you know, the stuff that he's pulling off with his Michigan moves behind the net. It's it's stuff that, you know, we wouldn't have even tried back in our day. We couldn't have tried, but we wouldn't even have thought of it. I think that's the biggest thing. Um, but the players, you know, they're so skilled nowadays. It's so much fun to watch. I do get a little frustrated with uh, the officiating and, and the way the game is officiated sometimes with, uh, you know, they, they don't seem to let them get away with anything, which I'm not so sure is a, is a good thing. Um but the plus side is the game is so fast. The game is so skilled. Uh, it's a good game to watch when the referees aren't getting in the way. Uh, probably better than it's ever been. I, I will never argue that. Um, but, uh, you know, just watching, like I said, for, for me here in Edmonton to see McDavid and Dreisaitl, it's a real privilege for us here. I live just one bridge south of the Lightning and Lightning Bay, and I know you were there in the early 90s. And back then, compared to now, it's probably night and day. Now they're still out there. And the atmosphere is pretty intense. It's going to test water, obviously. And all I have really to compare it to is the sort of Kansas down in Sunrise there, but they're also starting to get like that a little bit. And Pittsburgh. So I'm wondering, from your perspective, when you're a player, was there any, anywhere that you played and just were thinking, this is the atmosphere? This is. Is it a Canadian team or was it something that might surprise us? Um, yeah, no, it would probably be the usual suspects. Uh, I'd say Montreal Forum was like going to church. It was the cathedral of hockey at the time. Uh, I remember walking in there, you know, you look up at the red painted seats and it looked like it just got freshly painted that day. Uh, it smelled of fresh paint. It uh, They had the hot dogs. They had... You'd go to Chicago Stadium. Uh, you could smell the stale beer and all the hot dogs and pizza. You listen to that organ. It was incredible. Uh, you go to Madison Square Gardens and you just like, you know, here I am on the fifth floor of Madison Square Gardens playing a game in the Big Apple. Like, it's a, it's a dream come true. So there's some incredible places to play. Uh, it was always nice. Like when I first started my NHL career, LA was the only sort of sunbelt. So it was pretty cool just to get away and see some palm trees. Uh, then, then came Tampa, Florida. Those are always nice little breaks. Um, because we got so few of those back then, our owner here in Edmonton, a guy named Peter Pocklington, he, uh, when we'd go to LA, we had one trip a year where we'd go to Palm Springs and we, would golf with President Ford, Gerald Ford, uh, back in the day. Him, Peter, and Gerald Ford were good buddies, so we would uh, always make a trip with the Oilers to go to Palm Springs, golf with Gerald Ford, uh, go to his house after visit with him. Betty Ford was there. Um, it was pretty cool. 
but that was kind of the Sun Belt thing. But if I got to look at uh, my favorite places to play, other than home for me, which is Vancouver, Calgary, Edmonton, those types of areas, uh, Montreal Forum is probably the pretty coolest, coolest one. So uh, tell us about your camps where people can sign up. And then also I wanted to ask you about like the, the dismantling of the Oilers. Uh, we had this conversation with Bill Ranford before, but I wanted to get your take on it. Uh, just the players that were being traded away. How much longer had they been able to keep the band together? Do you guys think you could have been competitive? I mean, you're still making uh, Western Conference finals there all the way to the early 90s. Just your thoughts on that. Yeah, so like, I mean, that team was that team was unreal, uh, no question. They had they got them young, they started winning young. They could have held on to them. Uh, the biggest factor was Gretzky, obviously. Um, you know, you keep Gretzky, and everything's everything's yours, really. Uh, but we, I mentioned my, our owner Peter Pockington. He he got greedy. He had money trouble, and. Uh, he needed to sell off some assets, and he ended up selling Gretzky. He ended up selling Messier, um, you know, just to kind of get some money together. Um, they weren't perfect. Obviously, they had some dysfunction. Uh, when I first came to the Oilers from Pittsburgh in 87, I think Gretzky was making about a million. Messier was making about 500000 and everybody else was under three. Like everybody was making nothing, and and it was in the hush hush days of don't tell people how much you're making. I think Glenn Sather said to me my first day as an 18 year old, he said, "We got to do something about your contract. You're making way too much money." And I was making about 115 thousand at the time. Uh, so it was, uh, yeah, it was a different era. Uh, Glenn Sather was an amazing coach and general manager, and he had that team had a real swagger. Um, but the downside is, you know, they, they couldn't keep them together forever. Uh, but the day Wayne Gretzky got traded was, was the start of the, you know, the changing of the guard. And, you know, Messier and Kevin Lowe and those guys, they held on. They won another cup without Wayne. Uh, Glenn Anderson, Grant Fuhrer had a great team. But that was definitely the start of it. And, yeah, it's like anything. It's hard to keep a team together forever once you're core ages out or gets traded it's you got to be recycling but you got to also take advantage when you can all right well thank you so much for joining us chris oh and, and tell us about your uh your camps oh so they're just a couple of hockey camps uh i still do uh some on ice training here in edmonton area uh so i run a couple of weeks of hockey school in the summer right before everybody goes for their tryouts and uh yeah it's it's uh not skill you know it's, you don't have to be elite to be in my camps uh, we go out there we have a lot of fun uh we play for a little trophy we keep score keep stats for the scoring leaders and then uh lots of good individual skill for the for the players so it's a lot of fun uh i'm 53 years old now so it gets a little harder when i'm doing six hours a day on ice for two weeks straight but i love it i lose my voice my back is sore my feet is sore but at the end of the two weeks i'm uh I'm a happy guy. It's a lot of fun. Everybody remember, check out his website. That's www.chrisjosephhockey.com. And be sure that you hit like and subscribe on whatever you're listening to this show on. Thank you, Chris, for coming on. We appreciate you being here. Thank you, guys. It was a lot of fun. Everyone have a great night. We'll see you next time.